Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Uh, and welcome, a warm welcome to our panelists today, who I'll introduce in a moment, and also to our online audience. This is for a discussion of COVID in South Asia and its impacts on poor and vulnerable people and the policy implications that we can draw from the discussion. And we have an expert panel today, who you can see on your screen. We have uh, Imran Matin, director of the BRAC University Institute of Governance and Development in Bangladesh. We have uh, Manjista Banerjee, a researcher at the Indian National Council for Applied Economic Research. We have Marta Eichsteller, uh, from University College Dublin, a lecturer, and she's a research associate at ODI. And we have Ihsanala Ghafur from the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit. We also have Vidya Diwaka, who, although she's not going to uh, make any sort of uh, presentation, will be there to uh, comment and also to summarize the discussion at the end. Now, I'd just like to say a little bit about how the uh, event will unfold. Uh, I will ask the contributors uh, two rounds of questions. Uh, and then uh, after that, we'll have a Q&A. Now, if you would like to put a question or a comment or an observation or a thought, uh, please uh, do this as we go along. And these will be sent through to me, and I will be able to transmit these questions and issues to the panelists who will then be asked to respond. And at the end, uh, Vidya will sum up. So this uh, event will last for an hour. So I'd like to go straight away to the first round of questions. Uh, and there are four questions in the first round which uh, panelists are going to respond to. First of all, I'd like them all to say something very briefly about the evidence which they have. And then to outline from this evidence, what are the major risks that uh, poor and vulnerable people have been facing during the pandemic? And perhaps, uh, what are the major risks faced by different groups among poor and vulnerable people? And then thirdly, uh, a question for everyone, I think it's a really important question. Do you think that the newly poor will be able to recover their pre-pandemic positions? So I think uh, in many situations, uh, some people who have not been experiencing poverty have become poor as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so I think their recovery is an important issue and we should focus on it. Uh, and then, a question finally for the first round about the responses that governments have made to these situations. Which of the responses have had positive effects for poor and vulnerable people? Where has there been no or an inadequate uh, policy response and what might be done about this? And without further ado, I'm going to turn to Imran Mateen to talk about Bangladesh. Imran, over to you. Great. Uh, am I audible? I hope I'm audible. You are, yes. Hi. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Um, so, uh, uh, what what I'm going to be doing is uh, drawing on the evidence that uh, 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 BIGD 
has been collecting uh, in partnership with uh, PPRC, another uh, research institution in Bangladesh. Um, and we have been uh, conducting a, a panel uh, study uh, surveys, actually four round of panel surveys uh, starting right after um, uh, the COVID uh, in hit Bangladesh in March uh, last year, February, March uh, 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 2020. I mean, from then on, we've been doing uh, surveys. So there are four round of surveys based on which uh, the last one was done in August, September this year. Uh, and we would be, and I would be drawing on that evidence base. So I've got a few slides just to tell the story. Um, so, so I think I think the first uh, point that I want to make is, uh, you know, there are uh, so the the big uh, uh, face of this crisis, the the income shock, uh, has been primarily urban, uh, but the shock in the urban for the urban poor uh, has been. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, I think, uh, severe that there's actually a reversal that we start basically seeing. Uh, uh, and here you can see pre-COVID, um, you know, this is the general pattern of any uh, developing uh, context uh, where you basically have an urban slum, uh, average income in urban slum would be generally higher than the rural area. And that's exactly you know, and that over time would should narrow, but in an upward way, not in a downward way. And what we basically see here is that by August 2021, there is a reversal uh, where, where urban slum average income is now lower than rural. And even rural average income is lower both than pre-COVID. So this is, this is the first picture, right? So we're basically having a wrong reversal. Uh, uh, and it basically started off with the very severe sh income shock in the first round shock, which is the first in June, February to June. That shock for urban slum has been very severe. That has not recovered and actually worsened over time. Uh, the next slide, please. It's also the wrong convergence that we're basically seeing over time. So as uh, as you can uh, you know I mean as you can see the you know the sort of average income you know pre-COVID as February 20 uh, uh, 2020 uh, between different uh, uh, different poverty groups uh, you know that's the distribution that was there you know quite high up on average for non-poor and then quite a big gap between non-poor and vulnerable non-poor as one expects and then the gap kind of between vulnerable non-poor moderate poor extreme poor are sort of clustered together what you see over time is all of this has basically you know clustered together in the wrong kind of a way you have a wrong convergence and this convergence is primarily driven by the vulnerable non-poor and the non-poor both having the income shock and not being able to recover. And I think that is the other uh, uh, point uh, of the uh, reality that we need to keep in mind that's happening. The next slide, please. Um, and we also see a widening gender gap. And this is uh, looking at uh, uh, you know, respondents who were employed pre-COVID and looking at, looking at their employment status over time. And this is looking at August. So these are, you know, respondents who were employed pre-COVID. And we basically see that of those who were, you know, the two points. So one is there's a big 
uh, transition in job that is happening, right? So you basically, you, you see that, you know, overall, uh, you know, almost half of 43% of, of sort of people actually transition from whatever job they were doing. And this transition is a downward transition. It's a transition towards more vulnerable forms of employment. And what's happening is for women in particular, you see that, that for women compared to men, the ability to transition into new job is much lower. So being out of work has been the predominant response, uh, you know, uh, and, and for women, it's been much more difficult to get back to work. So whereas over time, only 7% of have remained who were employed in February have remained out of work in August. Among women, it's 43%, uh, uh, according uh, to our survey results. So that's the widening gender gap. Next slide, please. And we see reverse migration happening, right? And it seems to be a bit sticky. So this is like, uh, you know, over time, uh, you know, 28% of our sample from urban slum area migrated to rural areas. And most of this migration have been due to the urban shocks that we basically saw, income shocks, lack of income uh, opportunities in urban areas because of, you know, the immediate COVID effect. But also, which I did not bring here, is the increase in the non-food expenditure burden, huge expenditure, non-food expenditure burden, which underlies a governance failure, uh, uh, which led to, you know, rise in rent and utilities and education costs and so on and so forth. Uh, and 10% remain to be in the rural areas. So there is a sticky stickiness that we start observing. And that's also important to note. Next slide, please. Um, uh, we try to look at, uh, do a national estimation of new poor. So new poor we have defined as vulnerable non-poor. Those who are vulnerable non-poor, basically those who are above the poverty line, but below the median income in Bangladesh, uh, uh, you know, the national median income. So that population group. And we looked at what percentage of, of that population group has fallen into poverty and then blew, blew that up. At the national level, so uh, we basically see by August, uh, you know, 19.5 percent is new poor who were not poor before. The vulnerable non-poor have basically moving into poverty. This does not include the non-poor, because our argument was that non-poor who have fallen into poverty will most likely be more more capable of bouncing back. Whereas for vulnerable non-poor, the vulnerability is likely to be more sticky. So we be, this is a more of a conservative estimate of the new poor, if you like. Some of the World Bank estimates are actually, you know, uh, sort of uh, a bit more, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, bigger. Uh, they come with bigger numbers on this. Next slide, please. Now, this is what we basically, so because we have panel data, we can look at chronicity, right? We can look at over 18 months, you know, of the vulnerable non-poor who have fallen into poverty. How many of them, you know, you know what is the distribution in terms of chronicity? And, you know, this is what we basically find that in total, we basically 35 percent uh, have are, you know, kind of have been poor over the three, three, three rounds because they were non-poor before. So the first round, of course, they were non-poor. We did four surveys. So of the three rounds, we basically observed these houses, 35 percent to remain under the poverty line. Fifty six percent have been kind of, you know, churning. Right, moving in and out. Uh, out of the three of uh, three rounds, they've been maybe you know one round they've been out, maybe two rounds they've been in, and so on and so forth. Uh, so so that's the churning group, and then eight percent you know kind of were never were never poor uh, even during the shock. And you can see the urban slum point here as well. The chronicity of 
uh, uh, the new poverty tab, trap, if you like, and, you know, kind of the emergence of a new poverty trap is more urban. Uh, and that's very, very clear here. Next slide, please. Um, and we also looked at, uh, uh, this is another dimension, we looked at children, we looked at, you know, learning, you know, learning what, what educational life of children. And we tried to, you know, come up with this uh, estimate a risk of learning loss by constructing, by, by sort of looking at what children were doing during this time. Uh, and uh, if they were not studying at all, if they're studying irregularly, uh, you know, those were clubbed together to look at yeah, learning loss risk of learning loss. So this is not a direct measure of learning loss, but a risk of learning loss. And here we see that over time, the risk of learning loss has been, has been increasing, particularly among secondary uh, male. Uh, uh, that is the category where we see the largest jump uh, between March and August in terms of learning uh, risk of learning loss. And of course, uh, you know, those skills, skills, schools are opening, schools have opened right now, this learning loss, risk of learning loss needs to be addressed in terms of some type of remedial supplementary education. Otherwise, uh, uh, this is going to, you know, kind of really lead to dropouts and, you know, kind of a real human capital crisis. Uh, next slide, please. Um, I think that's basically it. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of paint, uh, you know, the kind of a few uh, uh, faces of of the, the the effect of COVID nineteen among the poor and vulnerable in the Bangladesh context. Uh, we can come back later uh, with respect to, you know, uh, what does this mean and what type of policy responses can actually uh, work. Thank you. Uh, let's go straight on to India and Manjista, please. Sure. Uh, if uh, if you could uh, uh, start uh, the slideshow, please. Next slide. Yeah, so I would like to start by just taking a moment to acknowledge my team members who were part of the project as well. Next slide, please. Okay, so for this uh, talk, I'm essentially drawing on two data sources, the Delhi National uh, uh, Capital Region Coronavirus Telephonic Survey, which had around four rounds, and qualitative interviews that we did, about 30 in-depth interviews, focus group discussion, a couple of focus group discussion, and key uh, informant interviews. Uh, the sample frame for both the telephonic survey and the qualitative interviews are in turn uh, drawn from uh, an, a study that was ongoing at the time the pandemic hit the country, and uh, which is called the Delhi Metropolitan Area Study. So uh, like, uh, uh, like the Bangladesh study, we also have a rich panel, but we have not yet analyzed it as, uh, in depth. Uh, for qualitative interviews, uh, we uh, the focus was on households that were economically and socially marginalized, uh, the backward caste, the um, uh, uh, the um, those who are engaged in daily casual labor, those with uh, petty business, and so on and so forth. I would also like to highlight here that uh, the area of the study is the Delhi Metropolitan Area Study, also called uh, colloquially as the Delhi National Capital Region. So the findings pertain to this re uh, region alone and is not necessarily representative nationally. Next slide, please. 
It is not at all surprising given that uh, India had one of the most uh, strictest lockdown that livelihood distress is uh, a common concern among the households that we surveyed. So between April uh, to uh, December 2020, about 36% of the households reported that uh, either uh, the salary or daily wages of household members uh, was reduced. The other major concern was inability to find work with transportation emerging as one of the most important reasons for not being uh, able to find uh, work. Uh, household members also reported loss uh, loss of job. Uh, there are uh, there is an equally high uh, a substantial uh, proportion of the households who reported loss in business income or businesses getting uh, or closing down of business. Uh, uh, households also reported selling uh, crops at lower prices. A significant a, a slightly smaller proportion uh, of households said that they were inable unable to find work because of uh, familial responsibilities. Next slide, uh, please. So uh, in the qualitative interviews, this is uh, the uh, kind of typical scenario that we uh, uh, that um, respondent told us. This is by an adult male, about 35 years of age, uh, who has five household members and he is the head of the household. He said to us the following. Prior to the pandemic, I could engage in labor work of any type from time to time, but wage work got suspended completely during the pandemic, as people were afraid of engaging laborers out of fear of getting infected with COVID-19. Additionally, I used to buy vegetables from wholesale vegetable market and sell within the village, but villagers were apprehensive of buying vegetables from me as I roamed around from door to door and customers would touch the vegetables before buying. I restarted my vegetable business two months back, but over the last month, I have not been able to sell anything. Since then, he told us that he, along with his wife, has have found employment in agriculture as agricultural laborers. And incidentally, in this, in, in this particular instance, they were both receiving the same wage. Uh, next slide, please. So it's not, again, surprising that with livelihood distress, borrowing is one of the most important coping mechanism. About four, four, 44 of the households that were surveyed during June 2020 and December 2020 uh, uh, reported borrowing as a means to cope with their earning deficiency and loss of livelihood. Uh, in this, and in almost all the qualitative interviews that we did, uh, households reported. Uh, uh, and in almost all the qualitative interviews that we did, how uh, households reported borrowing to bridge their income expenditure gap. Again, uh, in this particular instance, where uh, where a respondent had her uh, uh, where a respondent had her own. Uh, uh, own a uh, uh, flower selling shop outside the temple and which were closed during the pandemic as a containment measure said that for the past two years, we are living only on borrowed money. Next slide, please. Uh, reduction in food intake is also one thing that we observed in our uh, both in our surveys and in our quantitative uh, qualitative interviews. And the reduction is not so much in terms of skipping of meals as in shift to inferior food items and reduction in the intake of vegetables, fruits, 
eggs, fish, or meat. Here are some of the responses that we uh, got during our qualitative interviews. Forget about food. Sometimes we sit even for tea because earnings are not enough. Wheat and rice are available from ration, so that at least takes care of roti. And this, uh, the, uh, this another quote is from a 30 year, uh, 33 years old respondent whose husband lost his livelihood during the pandemic. We did not make sabzi, just made rotis. We had rotis as it is with pickles, salt with rotis. Next slide, please. Now, if we look at uh, uh, differences by occupation groups, uh, we find that the markers of distress are higher for a casual wage work group or those who are engaged in petty business as compared to either uh, salaried workers or those with agricultural uh, means of livelihood. This holds true both for borrowing as a means to uh, uh, sustain their uh, consumption expenses as also for hunger. Next slide, please. Differences by social groups are also not uh, are also along expected lines. Uh, Muslim households were more vulnerable than Hindu households, uh, as well as um, as well as uh, the scheduled caste households. They were more uh, they were uh, more vulnerable than general and OBC households. This holds true uh, both again. This holds true both for borrowing and for hunger. Next slide, please. Okay, now uh, one of the consequences of this financial uh, constraints that people have been facing is that uh, it has reduced the extent to which they can support their children uh, for education. And uh, withdrawal of children from school, particularly private schools, has been, uh, uh, has been one of the most common response to deal with the livelihood uh, uh, crisis. Um, so again, to quote one of our respondent, my children are not going to school this year because we have not given them anything. That is, they could not pay the fees. Last year when schools were open, they asked for fees for the full year, even though they were open only for three months. We did not pay because we did not have money. Children have not been going to school since the first national lockdown. And this would be around March 2020. Next slide, please. Now, uh, now, if we compare, and this I think is uh, kind of similar to what we find in Bangladesh, is that we find that the urban poor have been more disadvantaged than uh, rural poor. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first is that the disease burden has been greater in urban areas than in rural areas. The uh, lockdown and the containment measures was also more strictly imposed in urban than rural areas. Historically, a, a, a greater proportion of India's poor were located in rural areas. Therefore, all our social security measures are directed to rural areas. And that's one reason why the rural poor were better uh, able to uh, better better covered through these uh, uh, social security measures than the urban poor. And lastly, but not the least, the agricultural sector escaped relatively undented by the crisis as compared to other sectors of the economy. Second, I would also like to highlight that children of poor parents with limited education are the ones without access to digital devices, and they are the ones who are likely to bear uh, the fallout of a long period of school closure most as compared to other groups of children. Next slide, please. 
In terms of government response, we have seen uh, 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 support in terms of food grain as well as in, in uh, terms of cash support. And um, uh, and if we, uh, next slide, please. Uh, and here uh, you can see that uh, what I said earlier was that the rural poor have been better able to access these benefits as compared to the uh, urban areas. And uh, next slide, please. And we uh, find that uh, uh, because of the greater vulnerability of Muslim ha Muslim households as compared to Hindu households, and for scheduled caste and scheduled tribe household as compared to other caste groups, they are also the ones who reported um, uh, reported uh, 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 a greater share of these uh, food and cash support as compared to other households. And that's it. For now, I, I can uh, discuss more about what worked and what did not work later. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Manjista. And let's go on to Afghanistan. Marta, would you like to um, contribute? Okay, so uh, what we did with the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, uh, as well as with Chronic Poverty Network and ODI, is we actually just conducted a study we are in a very, very early stage of preliminary kind of analysis. Therefore, we don't really have a kind of fully developed analysis just yet. So we decided to kind of share with you a little bit more of what we see on the ground. Uh, we did conduct it. The study itself uh, is quantitative and qualitative together. Uh, so we did uh, approximately 70 qualitative interviews, which are divided by uh, knowledgeable, knowledgeable uh, interviews, as well as uh, kind of sentimental interviews, sentimental household interviews. This study in particular is very valuable because it combines the data set from 2015 and uh, 2021. So we kind of have this kind of longitudinal kind of outlook on what's happening on the ground with the household, which has been interviewed before and kind of now as well as we're planning to go and conduct a kind of more longitudinal qualitative analysis, but that is yet to be done. So we don't have that part of the study done yet. Uh, so what we see on the ground right now is obviously considering what's happening uh, is kind of with the conflict and transition of the power and instability is a big level, it's kind of detrimental level of impoverishment across uh, and it is much different situation uh, compared with what's happening in Bangladesh and India. So what we see is kind of the kind of big nexus of the big macro level issues happening. So it's COVID, the kind of transition of the power associated with kind of Taliban kind of think, taking over and the climate change, which affects the kind of agricultural part of the kind of economy. And we see that these macro level issues are not only kind of kind of taking part next to each other, but kind of almost kind of taking part and kind of kind of mixing with each other. So kind of they kind of interacting with each other in this very unexpected way. So uh, we see that, for example, in a kind of waterways and the kind of irrigation way when the dams are kind of trying to make sure that the agriculture is taking you know, is being managed uh, in a quite good way. So we, we've seen that, you know, when the 
uh, in the agriculture policies, you know, we we've seen that you know, uh, in order to make sure that the uh, water systems have been put together in order to for the agriculture to work well, uh, it was all working very very well over over time. But right now, what's happening is after transition of power and you know, Taliban's taking over. Uh, the dam system or management of dams have been kind of disrupted and uh, the water has been released later on in time and that disrupted the whole agricultural process lower in the in the kind of system and because of that the whole the whole agricultural process has been disrupted and the crops have been kind of failing uh, or we see the situations when the agriculture kind of you know the crops have failed that causes the migrations from the agricultural parts of the country to the cities, which then has been hit by the COVID wave uh, in the cities and kind of disrupts the, the kind of health service within the cities. So we can see those synergies between those three macro uh, level issues that actually hit Afghanistan much harder than we would kind of, you know, feel that, that we would see if we just look at climate change, conflict, and the uh, kind of COVID separately in a way. And we also see on the second level of that kind of synergies, we see the, that you know inflation and rising prices, especially of agricultural uh, kind of produce and food, it's hitting Afghanistan and household, household level and poor people quite a lot. And that is due to the disruption of supply chains of food and disruption of the of the production of food and the disruption of the distribution chains and once again the disruption of the supply chain is caused by conflict and we see a huge huge kind of rises of crime on the kind of supply chain we have quite a lot of evidence when farmers are talking about that even though they have a produce it's very difficult to deliver it uh, safely and to distribute it. Uh, we have quite a lot of evidence uh, on the disruption of produc production uh, where the, you know, where kind of it is very difficult to gather produce on time and uh, or kind of even grow it on time. And we have quite a lot of evidence on the, dis the disruption of distribution where due to the COVID uh, kind of lockdowns, it is very difficult to sell it because the markets are being closed or only open in specific days uh, and the produce is getting spoiled in between. We also see quite a lot of uh, household level crisis uh, that drains resources, uh, such as we see the rises in a bright price, uh, which kind of drains a lot of resources in terms of, you know, people trying to start families. And, uh, you know, we see quite a, you know, kind of big conflicts in, in this kind of ideas of, you know, how much the young brides are kind of being, you know, what's the, ex you know, exchange rates and, you know, that, that kind of becomes a quite a big and contagious issues. We also see the kind of uh, big issue in medical expenses uh, and not only in the COVID related issues, but any other issues. Uh, so, you know, the common diseases, uh, you know, kind of cardiovascular, any other is it's becoming quite a drain on the resources right now, as the kind of medical and health systems are becoming pretty kind of jaded. 
And the same comes with the costs associated with funeral expenses. So as we become, as, as the, the kind of situation and the whole system is becoming pretty strained, we see that this is this is becoming a, a, a quite a tense situation, which creates a, a, a kind of a situation which really drains the households on the ground and leads the, those households, you know, to the, you know, very fast to the situation when even the households, which has been relatively strong in 2015, right now impoverished in a very, very fast rate. And we actually identified from the households which been in a really good financial conditions, very, very few are actually able to withstand that kind of level of drain of the resources, uh, you know, right now. Uh, we also see that, you know, the usual ways of coping strategies, which are kind of the access to the credit, uh, which normally would be uh, based on a social capital from the family members, from the community members, from the neighborhoods, uh, is also draining out those kind of pockets of money within the kind of social circles are also draining out very, very fast. Uh, so this is actually kind of also being taken away from those communities. We also see that, you know, the migration as a kind of route of accessing the, the, the money and the capital is being also kind of locked in, mostly because the borders to, you know, the usual route that we've seen was the, you know, migration to Iran is also being kind of taken away due to the movement restrictions. There, there was quite a lot of stories when people actually did take that route, it was quite risky. People have been detained on the border, sent back due to the kind of COVID lockdowns restrictions. So that is also being taken away of them. That situation also created few at risk, more at risk groups, which I hope that Ishan can talk about a little bit more if he's still there. Uh, so we've seen on the ground from the qualitative material that that situation, uh, you know, exasper exacerbated by this kind of transition of power, uh, just created a very, very unstable and very, very difficult situation for the household, especially at risk poor household, to, to really kind of stay, kind of, you know, kind of resist uh, the kind of impoverishment as we see it on the ground. I'm not sure. Is Ishan there? Can he comment Thank a little you. bit more? Thank about you, Marta. That? I think uh, Ihsan is indeed there. Uh, yeah. And uh, Ihsan, it's the floor is yours to add to what Marta has said. Uh, thank you, Marta, uh, uh, for a, a detailed uh, information provided about this. Uh, I'm not going to, as uh, in detail, uh, detail, you have been already there. Uh, like you talk about the risk uh, groups that are available and about the risks risk that is like uh, facing to the people uh, in uh, during the data collection uh, a group of uh, these uh, the, the, our respondents they were like uh, facing a group of risk that was like uh, uh, not only the pandemic but the, in the time of the pandemic they also faced with the severe drought in the region and they were not able to cultivate uh, their uh, their uh, harvest and their crops uh, in but uh, in those uh, those uh, farmers who cultivated uh, to some extent uh, heavy flooded uh, had their uh, their crops and they destroyed their crops into in, 
in one of the villages uh, in the same in the same way like uh, in the time like there was also fight in those rural areas in one of the, the our target district and because of this fight the people cannot properly had access to the market and they, they were not able to sell their uh, their products not Uh, I think we've lost Hassan yeah. for a time. Did you want to just carry on a little bit? Yeah, the, the other address groups which are being created there are the internally displaced people who are kind of pushed out of the rural areas due to this, you know, agricultural crisis with lack of the employment due to the failure of the agriculture within that areas uh, and pushed into the cities and creating this kind of very very displaced population kind of inhabited this kind of not urban areas but this kind of semi-urban peri-urban areas very much squatting in without access to education and without access to the health services uh, creating a, a kind of a very very at-risk populations uh, we see the appearance of the kind of child labor appearing slightly with the populations which are uh, kind of depending on the child labor, children actually collecting plastic and paper and scrap in order to help their parents to, to, to pro, you know, to provide for the, you know, to provide for to, to income for the family, mostly because parents are not able to access the wage labor or secure enough wage labor to to provide for the food in terms of rising prices in the city of food uh, kind of in the cities uh, and at the same time because they are not registered in the cities they are they don't have an access to the education services as well Isan, is your connection good yeah i think it's good and also like uh, the, uh, the illegal migration was also another uh, uh, like people were uh, another risk for the people because because of the drought because of the fight because of the covid uh, and uh, covid 19 and loss of their resources they, they uh, some of the household obliged to take the risk of illegal migration and this illegal migration put them in a big risk because first they didn't have resources to go for the illegal migration but what they have done they took informal credit or they they give their land or mortgage to find that the, the, the resources to send their uh, family member to, Italy, to iran or other countries but and the, because of the heavy the, the border was very tightly closed by the iranian government and they were not able to 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 cross the border but they lost their resources like in terms of like uh, the the, the uh, the risk they are, affected the people because uh, because there was no food, uh, no enough food for the consumption. Uh, they didn't have eat uh, a lot because they, uh, they, there was no work for them. They, they didn't have income, so they cannot have enough food. Uh, and also, like uh, those children and those women who were like displaced people, they displaced because of the drought, because of the flooding, because because of the fight. They didn't have access to education. They didn't have access to school uh, to, to to health services like the household number, uh, like one uh, IDP two and three, and as well as <clears throat> some of the female because uh, some of the female. Uh, in some of the household, they were like they had a source of a sort of income from the, the the schools. 
since the pandemic in the like in the time of the lockdown the government closed the school so they they also lost this that access and they didn't have income because they were like on contract based uh, teachers uh, in also the, the the daily wage labor those idps and displaced people they, they they couldn't have even at the village level they they couldn't have access to the daily wage daily wage labor particularly those the, those people who are working in the industry sector on the other hand people who work who were working in the agriculture sector to some extent they had uh, like access to, uh, to, the, to 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 daily wage labor but not to, uh, to a lot, a, a, for many days the other uh, problem which they faced uh, the, the risk they affected the people and the rural was like uh, people they didn't have access to to the market because most of the time in the uh, like uh, at the rural people have different uh, crops different like gardens they they have to sell their uh, yield to the to the local market but in the time of the lockdown and the government did not allow them to go and sell their harvest that also rapidly increased uh, decreased their revenue in their income uh, in their income and at the same time very remote areas they also lack access to health uh, health service health services because of the, there was no enough capacity for the people and they, they, like uh, they can they cannot go to the city and the government was not able to reach those people uh, to provide health services in terms of the uh, like uh, these put these uh, like these rural people in a very difficult situation and the, the recovery for them was very like uh, a difficult difficult and uh, to some extent it was a lot also impossible particularly to, to those uh, families who lost their fixed asset like they sold their livestock they sold their land or they give their their garden on mortgage the it uh, the recovery from these things it will be it will be very difficult for them uh and uh, coming to the response from the government in the initial state there was there was no pro uh, proper response from the government to these uh, to these people and to overcome these obstacle however uh, because uh, international community and also some uh, donor also uh, like provided some aid and food to the afghan government and they distributed some like these food to the, the to the people uh, like but it was not sufficient in only like very like in a village like 10 to 15 people they were able to uh, to have this uh, aid and the other uh, major challenge was that that the government uh, there was lack of information the doctors and those who those people who are working like in the for the, in the covid and they were providing health services they didn't know properly about the, the way of trans transmitting these uh, these uh, uh, like uh, covid to other people so there was lack of in, uh, lack of information among, among the among the health uh, and medical people so i think uh, you can more uh, get more about these issues in our like in upcoming paper uh, so uh, i would stop here if uh, marta would like to add something thank you exan and thank you marta i'm uh, going to just um move the discussion on a little bit uh, as we've taken quite a bit of uh, people's time uh, i would just like to ask uh, imran and perhaps Manjista to say a little bit more about the government responses in Bangladesh and in India. I think we've heard just now about Afghanistan. Um, but if you would like to make a brief comment on government responses, and then I think we should open 
then after Vidya's comment, we should open the floor for questions. Uh, and uh, so please put your questions uh, online and uh, they will be fed through to me. I don't see any questions coming through yet, but I'm hopeful that they will. Imran, would you like to say a little bit about government responses? Sure, sure. thank you. I think uh, so. The government responds with respect to so the government responded very early with uh, 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 with uh, with stimulus packages, but uh, uh, but I think the focus was much more to support um, uh, the larger uh, enterprises and primarily the RMG sector. Um, I think that uh, worked uh, quite well. I think it was important uh, uh, to do that. Uh, but I think the government's uh, response with respect to supporting with more safety net type of packages, uh, uh, I think was was not uh, was 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 not as effective. It was uh, tokenistic. Uh, there were challenges in terms of uh, the actual last mile delivery uh, uh, with respect to having proper list and being able to do that listing exercise quickly and being able to harness. Uh, you know, the kind of power of, uh, 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 you know, NGOs and other type of actors to basically do that quickly. I think that's that's been an area of, uh, I think, uh, 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 challenge. Um, um, the support to the small and medium enterprise, the cottage and small and medium enterprise, which is actually, you know, the most, you know, a really important uh, 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 sector with respect to employment of the vulnerable non-poor. Uh, uh, primarily, I think support to that sector has actually not been, uh, you know, uh, uh, has been announced. But again, I think it's really in the last mile implementation of whatever allocation was basically made. That was the biggest uh, challenge, I think. So I think the lesson to draw from here, I think, primarily is is we need we need a much stronger uh, focus in terms of last mile delivery. Uh, and really understanding how that, what the real challenges there are and how to really, you know, fix the plumbings of the last mile delivery challenge and make that very agile and responsive. I think that is really the takeaway message, no matter what, of course, there's all the politics of allocation that needs to be, you know, kind of obviously worked on. But that, I think the last mile delivery challenge became extremely important, particularly in the urban areas. And I think the point was made uh, uh, from the presentation in India, because in the, in the rural area, at least you have got some form of local government structures, uh, safety net and social protection uh, mechanisms in place, um, uh, 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 which could be, you know, kind of expanded quickly. Uh, it wasn't, you know, but I think in the urban area, this challenge was particularly telling. Uh, however, the government, if you look at the, you know, whatever, you know, allocation was basically made and in terms of delivery, I think there was a focus to try and have a more of an urban focus in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, relief response that the government basically did. So I think that's the, with respect to the safety net and social protection, I think, um, uh, I think, I think, I think the general policy uh, that was, that was, uh, you know, kind of assessment of that. Um, I think in terms of the government has really done well, I think in terms of protecting the agriculture sector. And I think that really is important, uh, 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 starting from ensuring uh, the, the, the cost of input, uh, you know, could be kept at, you know, some level of control with ensuring the transportation of the essential deliveries uh, to happen of fertilizer and pesticide and so on and so forth. I think that was that was prioritized and it was absolutely the right thing to do. The labor mobility, 
uh, for the harvest that was that was that that's what happened during this time. I think the agriculture story is a success story in the Bangladesh context, and I think I think I think I think there's been good policy response on that on that front. Um, I think the big challenge is really now in terms of the SME sector, how to kind of reinvigorate the SME sector. Uh, how to get women back to work and how, what type of supportive mechanisms, uh, you know, what was supportive policy should be should be provided there. And I think this is a big area and education. I think that is the big one, especially with respect to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, children coming back to school. Of course, that is very important, but it is in some ways the easier part. The much more difficult part is learning. And here we have opportunity to shift the focus of education policies uh, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, programs from, uh, you know, enrollment and retain and sort of just uh, reducing dropout and retention from those type of areas to learning to more process oriented indicators uh, and, and, and sort of objectives. So I think here we have a big opportunity to, uh, to basically do that. Uh, there are some uh, quite interesting uh, uh, pedagogical uh, innovations that basically happened during this time period uh, uh, using uh, hybrid technology. Uh, uh, I think uh, assignment based, at, you know, kind of teachers providing assignment and using mobile phone to, to do the kind of uh, follow up. I think there is opportunities and promise there that I think should be leveraged further. Thank you. Thank you very much, Imran. And I think the education point came out very strongly in the presentation on India. Do we have Manjista still uh, in the event, or perhaps? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Yes. So, um, okay. So, in terms of what worked, I think what really worked in India was the uh, Aadhaar enabled uh, direct. Uh, benefit transfer system and uh, uh, the government announced uh, early on uh, as in fact as almost as soon as the lockdown was announced that it would provide uh, 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 provide additional grains to uh, to to all via the public distribution system this worked well in the rural areas where uh, the casual wage workers and poor poor households got access to the grains provided but in urban areas this was not uh, not that well uh, did not work that well in fact in our qualitative interviews we come across instances where households were in need of additional grains but uh, they could not access uh, access the pds uh, uh, access the pds system and uh, also, the other thing that has emerged from our qualitative interviews is that there is a, a need to enhance the dietary diversity that is provided through the PDS. Um, uh, so that, you know, there's not only focus on uh, rice and wheat alone, but there should be, you know, you should also have uh, other, uh, other uh, uh, like you should also provide pulses and other items. Uh, uh, then uh, the cash support, the government also provided some cash support. Again, it was extremely modest. Since then, uh, since uh, these measures were announced, the government has continued uh, 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 co continued with the uh, with the uh, additional support uh, in terms of food grains uh, till uh, till this year's Diwali. But overall, the focus has now shifted to ensuring economic growth. And uh, there is uh, there is less emphasis on uh, on on uh, social security measures, safety nets, uh, 
nets and uh, the other thing is that uh, that in terms of uh, in terms like in terms of like uh, uh, to meet the needs of the urban poor there, there is of course a greater uh, recognition of it you have you have this talk of one nation one ration card policy but again this can only happen in the long term and uh, and uh, i don't know how it will help the poor immediately uh you also mentioned about the learning crisis the country is facing and i do not my think that there is enough policy recognition of it schools have reopened but the uh, approach seems to be learning as usual which is uh, uh, which is like teaching um, according to a grade level fixed curriculum whereas uh, there there has been learning loss Uh, and um, the focus should be to ensure that children um, uh, children uh, 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 children uh, basic concepts and foundations are clear so so that they can uh, they can understand the uh, curriculum uh, that is appropriate for their grade yeah i i, I guess that's it yeah thank you very much manjista um video do you have any uh, contributions at this point any thoughts based on what people have been saying Yeah, certainly. I'm happy to offer some reflections and also summarize um, together. Um, and I think we've had some really interesting insights from our panelists. And I'll take us back to the objectives of this event. The first was around really understanding what has happened for people in and near poverty. And from our different panelists, we've heard that the pathway to zero poverty is facing multiple barriers. Um, to, to an extent that the progress on poverty reduction that we've seen in some countries before COVID-19 may not so easily occur going forward. So if you think about um, policies and interventions that otherwise were quite effective in contributing to zero poverty or poverty reduction or eradication, we know, of course, of the importance of quality education, particularly lower secondary school completion. Yet we heard from Imran in Bangladesh, for example, that secondary school age children, particularly boys, were at a strong risk of long term learning losses and also from Manjista in India. Um, I'd be curious to hear as well if this was uniformly across these countries um, when focusing on people in and near poverty or how might that situation have been particularly severe the further away you might go, for example, from the capital um, into areas that may have been particularly historically marginalized and sidelined in countries' development trajectories. We also heard from our uh, panelists that um, certain combinations um, There were synergies. So, for example, Marta Nissan noted about the macro challenges around conflict, climate, and COVID, um, and the impact this really had on blocking livelihood strategies, contributing to displaced populations, um, forms of household collaboration as well being threatened in the face of, for example, widening gender gaps. Um, but ultimately, these are the factors which are also quite important to household pathways out of poverty. Um, yes. On the positive side, we've heard that there has been some advances in social protection, but at the same time, we know, of, of course, of huge aid cuts, which are threatening flows into pro-porous programming outside of these, um, largely outside of social protection. And we know, of course, that there are multiple shocks and stressors as well, with coping strategies being blocked during the context of COVID-19. But at the same time, the question then arises as to how we can attribute the impacts to COVID-19 
or distinguish it from the other existing shocks and stressors that have been occurring across these contexts. And finally, our second objective of today's session was to understand what can the international community and South Asian governments in particular do to ensure that they can build forward better. And in fact, a lot of the risks and solutions that we've been hearing today are, um, in my mind, a lot of them are applicable to geographies outside of South Asia as well. So my question then would be, what or are there any South Asian specific policies and programs that we need to be considering in particular? What can these countries be learning from each other in the responses? I would like each of our panelists, if time allows, to ponder this, um, to understand in more detail what are the lessons that can be learned across these country contexts in order to make growth pathways going forward truly inclusive. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vidya. And we do have uh, one or two questions coming in from the audience. Uh, so there's a question or set of questions for Imran um, about migration uh, and asking whether uh, perhaps because, uh, and this would apply in India as well, uh, perhaps because the rural areas uh, may have had a slightly better time in terms of their economic activities compared to the urban areas, um, you know, have they, has there been, has this process of reverse migration uh, been uh, well absorbed, if you like? Um, so if you could say something about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, a second question also um, for Imran, uh, but I think uh, others might also have views on it. What are the major hindrances for women to get back to work? even if things are getting back to normal. We've seen a, a number of you talking about uh, increased gender inequality in employment. Uh, so I think those two questions are very relevant. And do keep the questions coming, audience. In right. No, uh, in terms of the migration, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, in terms of the pattern, what we see is uh, very early on, uh, you know, right, right, Right when the first lockdown happened, you know, the, the, the first, you know, when there was fear factor was very strong and all that. I mean, that's when the large migration, the large, you know, kind of part of the urban to rural migration basically happened. Um, um, and I think, you know, during 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 the time when recovery was happening, uh, uh, you know, about half of them, I said, 28% of of urban sample migrated. About you know, 15, about you know, half of them returned. About 10% stayed back. Um, I, I mean, I think we will be doing further analysis to look at you know how they are different of those who are who are returned and who who sort of sort of stayed 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 on. But but in terms of how they are being absorbed into the rural uh, rural economy, I think I think the big challenge there is that. Uh, you know the existing uh, uh, safety net programs or support programs, social protection type of programs that exist in the rural area are not catered to uh, supporting the new poor. They're actually not even part of these, uh, uh, you know, in, of these lists that are that uh, through which you know these type of support mechanisms actually work. So, so I think uh, so. So that's sort of one. And second is you know uh, their political connections and political social capital in the rural area is weaker compared to uh, you know people who live in rural areas for a longer time period uh, so that is another i think uh, 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 issue uh, so and and the third one is you know these are 
vulnerable non-poor. These are actually not, uh, you know, uh, you know, long-term poor people. So the the the, the aspirational uh, dimension, the psychological dimension, um, uh, I think is also important. The skill sets are also quite different. Uh, those who are basically staying back in the rural areas. So I think uh, you know the support package here. Uh, I think needs to be needs needs to take those elements into consideration. And you know it may, may not require a lot of ground-based support, but a support that basically allows uh, you know access to capital for them to be able to start maybe you know enterprises. Uh, uh, so this is more of a micro enterprise development oriented support rather than you know safety net type or sort of uh, social assistance uh, over the longer term so so i think that's the way to basically think about this um the question around you know what is what, what are the barriers for women getting back to work i think this is something that you know i think uh, we need to understand much more but but i think what's really happening so one is the sectors in which this you know women women's employment, some of the sectors have been more affected than the sectors where, where male are predominantly working. So for instance, beauty parlor, tailoring, uh, those type of sectors have been more affected uh, due to sort of COVID. So I think and it's taking longer for them to recover. And because this is linked up with the aggregate demand of the economy and so on and so forth. So I think I think there's a sectoral dimension here. So there's a re, there, there's, there's, we need to think about other uh, uh, types of employment opportunities that, that, that that may kind of in the interim could basically work um, uh, or maybe, you know, completely moving away from some of those sectors uh, where, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the sort of demand pickup here would not actually basically happen, at least in the in the medium term. Uh, but I think there are real constraints with respect to intra-household. So because as men's income have basically fallen, uh, uh, so I think there are intra-household labor allocation that's basically happening where women are, you know, picking up some, you know, kind of household level work, uh, which perhaps was done uh, sort of before with the, with the higher level of income, uh, employing, you know, household help and so on and so forth. I think that perhaps may be part of the story. So I think, I think there are intra-household dynamics and I think sectoral uh, uh, labor, you know, kind of uh, 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 labor issues that I think needs to be looked at, and any package needs to any any active labor market, uh, you know, kind of policy or intervention needs to uh, look at both intra-household and the sectoral dimensions of women's income, you know, work uh, dimensions. I think that's a very strong response. Thank you, Imran. And there's also a question for Manjista uh, coming out of your presentation. What are the specific factors contributing to to certain communities like scheduled castes and Muslims uh, worsen situation in comparison to others? I mean, this uh, could could lead to a very long answer, Manjista, but did you, uh, because clearly, you know, this is a very deep set of issues in India, but uh, did you come across any kind of short answers in your work to that? You're muted, Manjista. Uh, I think it has to do with a number of factors. One is uh, that uh, the the nature of work that they are involved in is almost always very contact intensive. And that is one reason why they have been more affected than by uh, than other uh, uh, than other communities. Also, the overall level of skills that some of these um, 
some of them have is extremely low and they were and they are also engaged in informal employment so these i mean to give a very short answers these are the kind of factors that push them out of the out of the uh, uh, i mean that make them particularly vulnerable uh, for example uh, there i mean i highlighted this case during the presentation there uh, this scheduled caste woman she had a flower shop in front of the temples and temples were closed due to the pandemic and one of the rumors that spread was that flowers uh, um, um, uh, flowers uh, covid spreads through flowers and that became one additional reason for people not engaging in business with her and uh, this uh, the other example was that of vegetable vendor who was uh, who said that you know people were apprehensive of buying vegetables from him because people would be touching the vegetables before they would buy so this kind of a contact intensive uh, nature of their work makes them particularly vulnerable and also uh, as with uh, when it comes to muslims i think the government did not handle the situation and in, in fact it, it precipitated a crisis for them where you know where they were seen as active spreaders of the virus and this promoted this i mean this did not come up so much in the interviews that we did but it may have but it was possibly one of the reasons why they were more vulnerable than than the other communities i'm giving well, a very short answer thank you very much manjista that was admirably short um for such issues uh I, I have a question here are there any learnings from the experience for pakistan but i think this relates to Vidya's uh, challenge to the presenters. Can we learn any lessons from the experiences which are applicable in other countries, either from the experiences of uh, policy interventions or program interventions? Uh, but can we learn anything from these experiences which can be more widely applied? Uh, let me start with Afghanistan, which I think is perhaps the most challenging of the environments if either Ihsan or Marta would like to respond on that is there any learning and then we'll go to India and Bangladesh and then we'll have to wrap up thank you yeah from my perspective I would be interested to know comparatively you know how you can see very strongly when you compare with Bangladesh you know when agriculture is managed well in a context of crisis versus when it's not managed at all when you see, you know, the kind of complete collapse, you know, how with the, you know, how it can, the outcomes can be completely different. And, you know, how lessons can be learned, you know, how to handle those kind of transitions moments really, really successfully. Uh, I think, you know, for the policy perspective, this is a really interesting way of seeing how it can kind of, how, how you can, you know, really, kind of supervise that kind of transitions and crisis and make sure that you know the you know the the really really sensitive moments are being kind of secured really well and cushioned really well so you know this is comparatively really really brilliant op opportunity to do that kind of comparative uh, for me as a kind of kind of comparative researcher but you know in some any other uh, uh, first, I would would like to add some about the hinders for the women in Afghanistan, like whether do they went back to their 
jobs or not i think uh, from uh, like we have a couple of hindrances for them like first the, the first reason was that women are not able to go back to their own jobs like it was the change in the government in the new the strategy for the new government is like they are uh, allowing they, they they are saying that they would allow, allow to go to women go back their own but within the a uh, frame but so far uh, they didn't go back the other reason in the previous regime like uh, on that time the lack of funding was like an, another opportunity because during the covid there was no enough funding in the inter international community also uh, stopped some of the com international community, uh, like organizations stopped their works and women lost their uh, jobs and went uh, the, the lockdown covid was not finished then the, the regime has changed and the other two reason that uh, we had uh, like uh, women who were in who had income generation activities those women were severely have affected as imran also said like in the sector wise uh, we had women who was producing the local markets but since the markets closed and uh, they lost their market and they lost their customers they didn't have they, they, they were they were not were not able to go to to gain those customer back or to gain the the, the position in the, in the market so these were like some hinders for the women in terms of com comparison i think uh, there was like uh, there are a lot of issues that could uh, comparatively because uh, like we can say the migration compared to afghanistan and pakistan compared to pakistan afghanistan there is there's more migration of the people Due to COVID, due to drought, fight, and this change of uh, this uh, uh, government, so this is the only one issue that uh, Afghanistan has more. Thank you. I think you are muted, Andrew. Thank you very much. Manjista, would you like to comment from an Indian perspective? And you are muted too, Manjista. Yeah, uh, I also see a question on the digital distance in rural and uh, can I respond to that uh, briefly? Of course, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so this has been a major cause of concern. I mean, online teaching for those in rural and tribal, uh, rural India is uh, uh, essentially means what a respondent told me was that uh, it means that you uh, that the teacher is essentially sending is nominal. He said it's just nominal. It means that the teacher is sending uh, pictures from the text, and the child has to complete the complete the assigned homework and send it back. So it was it was not um, actual teaching in uh, it was not teaching in any real sense. One of the ways to resolve this could be and uh, could be that you have uh, digital libraries in villages where people can um, where people can take uh, some uh, digital devices uh, group. Uh, group, uh, they can group among themselves and then you know and then there can be uh, uh, there can be some kind of uh, real uh, online teaching happening as of now it is not uh, yeah, even when they say there is online teaching it actually means that there is not much that is happening and i think uh, and i think that there is possibilities of learning here from bangladesh because they have had uh, um, uh, of uh, hybrid teaching models and i think this is where a lot of learning can take place between between uh, between the two two countries 
Thank you very much, Manjista. Imran, would you like to follow that? Thank you. Uh, so, so two. I think one is uh, what 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 Manjista just now mentioned. I think uh, I think there are big opportunities and risks as well with respect to the edtech. Um, uh, you know, kind of uh, 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 promise here. Uh, I think both India and Bangladesh, we have huge markets, uh, you know, obviously for, and there's a big demand for education among among our population. Um, so there's obviously a lot of interest in terms of edtech uh, innovations uh, from around the world. And COVID has really opened that uh, that uh, that space up in a much more, uh, in, 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 a, in a much more intensive way. But I think we we need to we need to have you know kind of you know we we need to grab hold of this opportunity so it works for our children uh, rather than being used as a way to you know kind of uh, privatize uh, and sort of serve certain commercial interests. So I think there's a big danger here and a huge opportunity as well. So it's a high stake uh, opportunity here, and I think I think coalition building is going to be really important um, on this on this front. So this is sort of one. The other is, I think there is an emergence. We we start seeing this emergence of trap here. So we are seeing emergence of poverty trap that is happening, and and we know there are in, you know very strong evidence based interventions that can work to unlock such traps. Uh, uh, the ultra poor graduation model that uh, you know BRAC in Bangladesh has been uh, 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 pioneering, and there's huge amount of evidence that it, it's very effective in multiple contexts around the world. So I think it's an opportunity uh, as well to really bring forth these type of uh, 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 evidence-based uh, uh, interventions that we know. Uh, works and how to really mainstream them, these as a part of COVID recovery, social protection and jobs strategy. I think that's another, uh, I think, uh, big area that we could all work on. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you very much. I mean, the, we've had a very interesting discussion today. We've run a little bit over time, um, but I thought that it was better to uh, keep the discussion going until we reached a point where we had satisfied hopefully most of the audience. Um, I don't think there are any more questions coming in now. But I would just like to thank all the panelists. Uh, you prepared uh, some very um, substantial material for us today. And uh, you've responded very nicely to the issues that I've raised and uh, the issues raised uh, online by the audience. Thanks to our audience as well for raising those issues and for listening. Uh, and please do communicate with us afterwards uh, if you would like to. We're very open to that. Uh, and thanks also to the team behind the scenes. Uh, that's Rob and David and Isadora for making the session run uh, pretty smoothly, um, despite the challenges of, of uh, the Internet. Thank you all very much. I'm closing this now and uh, wish you a very good day, afternoon, evening, as it is. Thank Bye -bye. you. Thank you. Thank you.